0: Hi, Michaela.
1: Hello, Steve.
0: We're gathered here today uh, to talk about the recent paperback release of your book, Wild Woman's Way, originally published in hardback by Simon & Schuster in August 2018, and as of November 21, which is recent to our recording this, at least, uh, is now out in paperback. So first of all, congratulations on the paperback release.
1: Thank you. And I also want to say, because I'm so happy about it, I got a new cover, and so the... Uh, the new paperback has this beautiful new cover that I'm very excited about.
0: Yeah. And actually the audio version, I guess the audio book audible version, turned out to be uh, something of an unexpected hit also. And I think part of the reason for that is that you read it yourself. Your publisher had you read it, which from what I understand is unusual for a first time author, Wild Woman's Way being your first book. Could you talk a little bit about the uh, that process, that experience of uh, recording your own Audiobook book in the studio with Simon and Schuster.
1: Yeah, it was kind of an, uh, it was very emotional in a certain way and very interesting because of course I had never been in the sound booth reading uh, any book, uh, you know, and this was my own book. So it had all these layers of uh, a brand new experience and um, having Uh, written the book and then, you know, some time passes and and you go through the entire production of the book and then it came to the reading of the book. I had kind of had a bit of distance from it. So then reading it aloud and having to animate my own writing was quite uh, an interesting process and very uh, both challenging and exciting. And the real fun part was that uh, the whole third part of the book Um, Is all exercises and practices and these are very practical applications of the book. And they are things I still do to this day myself. There are things that are a mainstay of all our women's group work and uh, the way um, we do certain workshops. So I was able to read it and animate it the way I would if you're in a workshop room with me. And that was really fun and really exciting and gratifying. But there was so much, other things to kind of consider, one of which is of course that some of the book has, um, let's say autobiographical aspects to it because it's the um, development of the body of work that is The Wild Woman's Way. And so I got to bring my own story alive in my own voice which was, uh, very, uh, you know, which was very impactful and very fun in a
0: certain way. Yeah, and I'd like to touch on some of those biographical uh, points in, in this conversation, as well as getting into some of the content of the book. But uh, sticking with this, the creation process a little longer, I think one of the reasons the book struck a chord, uh, including the audiobook, was that it really does have your voice. I think that's that's why it was essential, in a sense, that you you did read it and did do the audiobook yourself. Uh, there were no ghostwriters. It was uh, really your own uh, creation. And under from what I understand, extremely tight deadlines uh, and with, let's say, during the production process, some rather unexpected events. Could you talk to us a little bit about the writing process? Uh, I know you set up a very interesting uh, regime uh, (laughs) in order to tackle the book in the short period of time that that you had to complete the initial draft. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, what occurred later in the uh, editing process that that added some, let's say, unexpected twists and turns?
1: Yeah. Well, I want to say that, of course, um, I'm a voracious reader and I love books and I have a, you know, I have a huge thing for books and have since I was a child. And so writing a book felt both, you know, very important and time and at that point also timely. I wanted to do it for much longer time, but it was just never there was never the time to do it. But of course, there is that small um you know, kind of, I don't know what to say it, uh, item of uh, English not being my first language, right, not being my native language. And so I had to kind of uh, overcome within myself that oh, English isn't my first language. Can I really write a book? Is it going to sound very Austrian? <laughs> and, and things like that. So it took a bit to kind of get myself to the place where I went, okay, I can actually write a book. Even though, of course, I can write a book. I've been speaking English for, you know, uh, much longer than, than uh you know, more than half of my life now as, as a main language. So th- there was that. And then, of course, um, since uh, we are at that point, right, still we're touring actively and teaching workshops all over the world um, for the entire year, I had a very short period in the summer to actually write the book. And it was kind of an interesting thing because I had – um uh, July and August. And then, uh, the very beginning of September, we started teaching again. We did our last workshop in Amsterdam, as you remember. And, uh, then, uh, I had this period of time to write the book, essentially a total of, um, seven weeks. And then, Um, I had like a week to kind of clean it up and have some people look at it and things like that. And then the submission for the date was, uh, for the book was uh, the 1st of September and I think we started in Amsterdam on the 4th of September or something like that. So it was a pretty short period of time and uh, I didn't really know what to expect. And so I started out by um, renting a cabin in uh, in Holland uh, to do the first week of writing. And it was kind of an interesting thing because I had this very romantic (laughs) idea. (laughs) Uh, you know, like romantic, naive idea of finding this uh, cabin in the dunes uh, of the of the Dutch, um, you know, seascape, which I love. It's one of my favorite places probably on earth, those when the tide goes out so far and all of that. So, uh, you know, we found this Airbnb. It looked like it was exactly that, but it actually turned out when I got there that... It was essentially a shed in somebody's backyard and the beach was over, was it an hour and a half or so walk through a a dune nature preserve, which was quite beautiful, but it was a long haul to get to the actual water. And I actually only made it to the water one time during my riding retreat. So my whole romantic notion of, Riding and then strolling down the beach, and uh, you know, putting my feet in the water it was totally thwarted. And furthermore, the landlord of the Airbnb, which turned out to be a hut in the backyard of a very lecherous old man, <laughs> who would uh, put them himself on a on a table outside my cabin, and uh, kind of made it so that I had to keep my uh, curtains drawn for the entire week. <laughs> So it was not an entirely auspicious uh, start to the, um, to the writing process, but it was really good because it forced me to just buckle down in a certain way. And, and I started actually with the practices. Uh, that was the first thing uh, in that cabin. I would practice and then write the practices down and I'd explore different things. And so it was fruitful, but it was a, a bit disappointing start to my writing endeavor and then I came home and um, I adapted some of the best things um, in the you know that I had kind of cleaned in that first week of writing by um, essentially making it such that I was totally uh, sequestered for the day in a in kind of a shed that I had in which was Called the writing shed. It was essentially my little library shed outside the house, and so I would get up and make a cup of tea, and I'd make myself, um, you know, enough supplies to last for a little while, of you know, food and tea wise, and I'd go into my shed. And my rule was I wasn't going to come out till midnight, other than bathroom breaks, and so that's what I did, and I did that for six weeks straight, and. Um, I just got in there at six in the morning, I had a ritual to start with, which included a a piece of music, and I would uh, draw a few tarot cards, just because I like doing that. And then I'd get going. And um, I just did that for six straight weeks. And it didn't matter if um, I actually wrote or not, I stayed in there. And uh, there were a few choice weeks in the beginning where I saw every single episode of Game of Thrones (laughs) instead of writing and things of that nature. So I had I had I had to really, you know, figure it out and then I'd get amazing runs of just writing, 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 and then it stopped again. So it it was a thing. But anyway, that's that I could go on and on about that, because um, I have to say that. I would love to do that every summer, let's say, or so, you know, because uh, writing a book is such a, an incredible way to also organize your thoughts and all of those kind of things. So it was really um, both incredibly epic and incredibly torturous. So I submitted the manuscript on August 31st and uh, then we went back on the road. And uh, the editing process took its uh, course. And then um, I received back the notes and I was about to get started on uh, doing the final edits when my ranch burned down in the 2017 Thomas fire. So what that meant was I was in Amsterdam. um, We were just done with teaching and um, I heard that there was a fire. And next thing I knew uh, my entire property, stables, house, barns, everything was gone. And what that meant essentially was that I had to do the final edits of the book uh, with a headlamp uh, in the dark because we didn't have electricity yet or internet or anything else. Um, And I I got a bit of an extension for a month uh, because it was December 15th was the deadline and they extended it to January 15th. And so I essentially did all the final edits in the middle of, no longer having a home or clothes or any of those things, and it kind of lent a very—I um, don't know how to say it—but it, it 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 lent a very strong significance to me finishing the book, and I still feel that very much. Uh, you know, when I see the book or when I talk about the book, because I had to kind of buckle down and do something that was totally not within the sphere in which I lived. I mean, there was so little visibility till almost the beginning of the year that we had to wear masks, you know, like N95 masks or more, not to get too much in the lungs and you couldn't see anything and there was no electricity or warm water or, uh, you know, spotty internet via my phone and things like that. So it it was kind of a real, odd thing to deal with that on one end, and then to edit a book and do a final draft of a book. But um, I managed and uh, it went into production and uh, it was published. And it was kind of an interesting time because uh, the book came out just as the rubble of my property was cleaned up. And so it was a very um, rich and, and quite significant time. Uh, And I will always remember it as such, obviously.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Really a proof of concept, I think, uh, as to the practices in the book. Well, let's pivot towards that, although it has come to my mind that the release of the paperback uh, in 2021 came out the same day um, as you appeared in another book.
1: (laughs) Yes, that was a very odd uh, confluence as well. Yes, my publishing date uh, November 9th, 2021, was the same publishing date as Will Smith's memoir called Will, uh, which uh, I'm in. Uh, so chapter nineteenth of that book called Surrender is all about uh, my work with Will over the years. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, I think it's a very uh, fun description of some of the key elements of uh, you know, the work I do and the work we do in, in workshops and, and also the work that is described in the book. So it had definitely a very poignant and, and beautiful, uh, you know, kind of arising of the second of, this, of the second birth of the book essentially. Uh, and it was very um, exciting and um, yeah, just really good.
0: Yeah, it's a fun coincidence. So you write here in the intro to Wild Woman's Way, this book is first and foremost my passionate love letter to the body, an invitation for each of us to remember the innate wisdom of our bodies, not our looks or our various shapes and sizes, but the living, feeling body as a portal to unlocking who we truly are. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind this book?
1: I would say that this book is kind of a combination of all the things that i'm personally passionate about um one of which is of course embodiment and bringing the body to uh life and the relation in relationship but also kind of the greater world and uh um remembering the aspects of the body that are Uh, holding a lot of native intelligence and um, both a lot of self healing on the nervous system uh, domain, but also a lot of creative power and uh, inspirational force. So embodiment is very important, both in the work we do, but also personally. And then, of course, um, I have a great love for myth and story, and i was I grew up steeped in kind of Celtic mysticism and come was raised in an in an area that has a very strong Celtic um kind of earth history. I come from the same place. Rudolf Steiner came from right? it's a it's a it's a very potent area of inspiration into um, drawing from let's say the archetypal experience of humans connected to nature and so that that played into it quite a bit and then of course my first um exploration was with uh, a teacher who was very intent on making kind of the everyday sacred and the um and the engagement with the body and with everyday activity also something that was so to speak, um, spiritually important or um, you know expansive, and my first real um, engagement into creating an own body of work was women's groups, and has been ever since I started. Um, teaching and facilitating women's groups, I think in 94 or 95, something like that. Um, First, it was like four friends in in my house and then in a little studio built in a backyard and and things like that. So um, the book is essentially all the things that um, I'm very, very passionate about and that I firmly believe are an answer or an antidote to some of the things we're dealing with every single day nowadays, which is the thing that we are doing right now, right? Lots of Zoom, lots of sitting, lots of computer work, lots of being on the phone, lots of um, engaging the mind and engaging kind of a forward linear aspect of us and not a lot of, um, let's say, relaxed, creative flow, enjoyment, pleasure, play, um, you know, the relaxation, there isn't a lot of that uh, there wasn't in uh, when I wrote the book, and certainly has gotten worse since (laughs) a lot worse since. So that's why I'm uh, still as passionate about the material as I've ever been, because it's so timely. And also, I want to say, since you started out with the more, uh, you know, biographical aspects, the practices in the book, are the things that kept me sane throughout the, the loss of my animals and my property and you know my life as I knew it, and um, so they're road tested in a certain way that I can say with you know um, great uh, I don't know what the word would be with great emphasis that they do work because uh, they got me through some pretty heinous experiences. Uh, in a way that I didn't freeze up or lose my ability to be feeling and engaged in the world. And so, um, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. In fact, we did an interview right after your uh, ranch burned down. Um, actually, we did an interview about, it was in the midst of, of the, of the I suppose, recovery rebuilding process very early on. And perhaps I'll link that in the show notes for people who are interested. That was at the time narration. I guess that would have been around the time you were doing the uh, the final edits too, I suppose.
1: And I think the reason why we talked about it um, in, in somewhat greater length was because there were a lot of people who were very You know, they they were on one end very upset because, of course, a lot of people had been to the ranch since uh, we would do events and, you know, and all kinds of gatherings there. Um, But also, you know, the people we would see all over the world uh, would want to know about things. And also a lot of people had lost, I wasn't the only one who lost (laughs) a house in the fire, right? Or or, or lost things. So um, there was a very strong... Um, interest in how do you deal with that kind of disaster. And that's why we did that original uh, podcast. And I think those things still hold true, even though now, thankfully, you know, enough time has passed that I have a, you know, have a different view on it again, a bit wider view.
0: Oh, really? What what is that wider view?
1: Well... (laughs) The wider view I think is that all those, you know, all those practices really kept me from dissociating and kept the trauma and the grief from, uh, solidifying. It also allowed me to keep on moving, uh, in a way that I was neither too anxious nor, um, you know, too, uh, crazed about things. And, um, and now that four years have passed, and you know I've rebuilt, and I'm in a new house, and all of those kind of things, and creatively, you know, we've moved on, and and there's so many new practices. I can say that within the body of work, uh, there is also stages that I can uh, delineate much better now, having gone through all of them, and it's really also influenced uh, the way I teach nowadays. You know, particularly nonlinear. Uh, movement and and things like that because I've gotten an extra insight into the layers of um, let's say coping with illness uh, loss grief um, you know destruction and things like that Um, so there's many more layers that I can see now looking back on it and also um, looking at not only my own body but you know my neighbors the people around here who all lost their houses what happened with their adrenals when they did certain things versus when they didn't what happened to their relationships what happened to um you know the the way they cope in the world and then of course subsequently coped with other events that that happened you know as we all rebuilt so i have a much wider view on how to sequence things for good recovery or for resiliency um, or for uh, reconciling with certain loss and grief and things like that.
0: That's very interesting. Can you think of one example or one particular insight, uh, of course not representative of the entire view that you're describing, but is there something that comes to mind as, uh, as a, sort of, a sort of example uh, or insight that you, you gained or was seasoned by that particular time?
1: Um, yeah, I think one of the well, there's lots of them, but I definitely think that one of the things I've learned about resilience, in the sense that um, there was no stopping, right? And this I think is um, often what people describe, including myself, when there's grief—not only grief about losing, you know, animals and a ranch and a life, but also when you lose a loved one, of course, right? There's often the feeling that you want things to stop. Because for you everything stopped. Everything's different. Everything's um, upended. Right? You no longer have a routine, uh, and this applies to not having a kitchen anymore, as well as to not waking up next to somebody. Right? Uh, even if it's not death, but breakup or things. Right? You're out, and you really want the time to um, stop, right? And just go what? But of course you can't because. The nature of of the event um, is such that life just moves on and moves on and moves on. And I remember that when uh, James died, right, my my previous teaching partner, um, it was the same thing. It felt like there was this river rushing that was just you know like with this fast fast motion of things needed to happen. And there was like no time to go. Whoa, what is happening? It was the same with the house. I mean, I had, um, you know, a horse and and donkeys who had survived, but the barn was all the feed had burned down, and there was no running water. And so, I couldn't go. Boo hoo! Um, I had to go. Where do I get feed? Um, I couldn't leave the area, otherwise I would not have been left back in. Where could I get water? What do I do? Are they injured, right? So there was this constant having to move forward and there wasn't time to really take stock and go, what has happened? So um, I found, and I've since worked with people on that as well, that what makes you resilient is essentially that you... um, attend to what needs to be done and positively reinforce every time you get to attend to something and get it done, but then also take a bit of time to kind of work things through the body. So in my case, that meant essentially I cried every single day and typically first thing in the morning and last thing at night, right, where I allowed myself a little bit of space to go (laughs) <laughs> what has just happened but then the rest of the day i went okay i got this done okay i got this done oh you know i i did the edit i fed the, the horses i uh i found something in the rubble right so i would positively reinforce gain uh, or or experience or you know satisfaction within the loss and that helped me um kind of stay with it and have and, and kind of create a certain resilience in the midst of, you know, those kind of things. And that I did I couldn't see till I was out of it. Right? It wasn't it wasn't such a it wasn't like a wildly conscious thing as it happened. It just turned out that by listening to my body and by doing the practices, I do, I had those moments of release and crying and wailing and being super angry and all of that. And I had to uh, motivate myself every step along the way to continue. And so now looking back, I can see this also how this played out for some of my neighbors who um, built some really strong resilience even in their 70s and some of them 80s. Um, And then some people who just really, you know, really suffered, got very depressed or very anxious, or gave up, moved away, things like that, because they couldn't, they couldn't do both.
0: Mm, very interesting. You are mentioning practices there. You're talking about practices, and of course, the book is divided. The first two thirds are laying out your thoughts and uh, lessons. Uh, On a wide variety of things. Perhaps we'll we'll talk about some of these uh, points. Superwoman syndrome. You talk about this idea of rewilding. uh, Concepts like pleasure as a birthright and so on. And you also uh, discuss things like career, how to navigate that. uh, Tribe, uh, how to navigate being part of a community, uh, the wider community. Uh, You're also talking about relationships, uh, dating considerations, uh, lots of different uh, topics. And then the last third of the book is what you've been referring to there. What you call the sacred practices of the wild woman, and it's a whole uh, section uh, full of uh, guided practices and practical explorations—a um, a very generous amount, actually. Can you talk a bit about the decision-making process behind that, including that section, um, and you know how best to navigate that as a reader? What what were you uh, intending when you decided to uh, download all of that material into that last third?
1: yeah well that was an interesting consideration and of course you were part of that consideration because um of course when you create a body of work and you know spent my entire career creating things so that there's stuff to do in workshops and so things that people have bodily experiences of practice that they can take home and that support them in their lives and and you know that's material that uh that we've created and and fine-tuned over many many years both me individually and some of uh, of it you and I together so to essentially give that away felt very scary. uh, And it felt very, uh, you know, really, do I really wanna give things that I've worked on so hard to really, really hone just away. And there were a few things that played into that um, decision. And the first one, of course, was that I felt like I wanted to make this book such that if it's the only book I ever write, right? And if it's the only time I get to give Um, of the you know 20 plus years of experience I've amassed I want to just lay it all out there and I really also because I'm such a reader and because I you know I read a lot of uh, books I wanted it to not just be the thing that uh, is kind of a marketing ploy for other things that people need to get right I didn't want that well this is the method and here's a is a tiny little bit. And now you need to sign up for the next thing. I wanted it to be something that if that's the only thing somebody gets, they have things that help them in their lives. And I had this very strong feeling that I wanted to reach somebody somewhere, but right? not, LA or New York, but, you know, somewhere in Europe or somewhere in the Midwest or in Australia, who really isn't totally clued in on all the things that are out there, but is just suffering from um, too much in their head, not enough in their body, um, you know, can't feel enough joy and flow and creation and has too much on the to-do list. And so I, I really wanted to make it so that um, there was something that you could go to and you could open uh, a practice and do it within a couple of minutes and reconnect to yourself. And so that was one of the main decisions to pretty much just all give it away. And the other thing was, and that, right, there's a little bit of writing about that in the book. My uh, first teacher, w- who really um, kind of initiated me into all of these. Um, uh, practices and considerations and um, who subsequently I moved to the States and you know she eventually moved a few more times before um, she actually ended up uh, you know in an accident and died Um, and as that happened I essentially received the instruction and the permission to um, carry forth the lineage and that was a really odd moment in time because when it happened it really didn't hold a lot of there, there wasn't it was very sad but we hadn't been super close for many many years i had done other things, I had developed those practices into an entire body of work of my own and all of that. So it it didn't hold a lot of significance to begin with. And then actually through a lot of the conversations that you and I had, um, there was suddenly this understanding that now I had to actually um, give it all On There had to be a um, continuation of the things that I had been given um, that had nothing to do with running a business or making a living teaching workshops or, um, you know, being the next best whatever self-help person or whatever people, you know, tend to want to do. It was like, wow, I have received a very specific uh, set of gifts and instructions and teachings that I can um, adapt to who I am because it's a living lineage, but nonetheless, I have to pass it on. And then, uh, of course, I had this moment of, wow, I have to pass it on and I need to do it before I die, right? And hopefully that won't be for a while, but uh, I'm not 22 like my teacher was when she became the lineage holder. So then suddenly, um, you know, there was this whole thing about, Let's pass it on, and uh, you were, you know, very uh, instrumental in that in that consideration. It was quite a struggle, and there was a big upheaval, also in the way, um, you know, work was done and how workshops are taught and change in personnel, so to speak, and all kinds of things that had to happen so I could reorient towards the giving it away service. Um, offering, um, passing it on in many, many different ways. And so that was the decision behind that part of the book to go, well, these are the tried and true best practices that I still use, that I still teach. Um, And even though that means anybody else can take them and teach them, that also means everybody else can take them and use them at home and benefit from them. And of course, because I have the building blocks within myself and because I have the building blocks within um, my experience, both professionally and personally, I can always create um, more exercises and more practices and vastly different things. And there was that uh, willingness to give it all away so it can really benefit. And then after that, of course, came a whole new rush of creative, um, outpouring and a whole new set of exercises, which probably we'll have to give away in the next book, you know. But also that we are now teaching other people so that they can facilitate their own women's groups and nonlinear movement sessions and you know all of those kind of things, so that it's passed on and also so that it can be used by somebody who's never going to go to a workshop, but has a book at home and opens a page and tries something and notices that that makes a difference in the body and that makes a difference in the emotions and in the relationship. And that's what I really, really wanted.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the key themes uh, that, that runs throughout these exercises and indeed throughout the book itself is this idea of rewilding or reconnecting with the body Uh, And in your chapter, Pleasure is a Birthright, uh, you write, Feeling is our birthright. It is innate wisdom, and through reconnecting with it, we can rewild ourselves back to our original nature, the place we started from before layers of doing, pushing, and obligation clouded over who we are. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea of pleasure as a birthright, uh, how it connects to rewilding uh, and and how it is that, at least it seems uh, to me, that these are key guiding themes in even the exercises themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that, of course, rewilding is not, uh, is not just for women, right? It doesn't matter if you're a human being, you can rewild and what rewilding and what the wild woman's archetype means is a coming back to nature. Right and coming back to nature, as in understanding that long before uh, we had you know a fully developed brain, uh, as human beings developed, our body already had a very strong intelligence, and our body till this day holds that intelligence of how things work. First of all, right, then that's our chemistry and biochemistry and and uh, all of that, but also um, the innate knowledge. Of um, you know, ext- sensory and extrasensory experiences or or input, the how to move through the world, feeling other people, feeling animals, feeling plants, feeling the tides, uh, and and the moon and the stars and whatever, right? Like that's that was what made humans developed to the point where now, and that's still there. And so when we reconnect to how our our body links in with the greater movements and rhythms of life and the earth, uh, but also how we link back into our own rhythms, right? We don't even have to go outside, just our circadian rhythm which has now been really studied in great detail as something that really influences our health both physically as well as emotionally and mentally Uh, so when we when we rewild we essentially avail ourselves of that vast intelligence and that vast um, survival and thriving potential that comes through our body and that comes through our um, subconscious and the way you know and our nervous system essentially so rewilding is the act of resensitizing to um, the, your inner landscape is how I say, say it, right? In, uh, in, in more research terms or, or psychological terms, people sometimes talk about interoception, right? Being able to uh, feel what's happening inside both physically and emotionally, which is what the nonlinear movement method is about amongst other things, right? So the, the feeling of one's inner landscape Um, is a rewilding that then allows us to take full advantage of those aspects how that fits in with pleasure is that of course how did human beings um, develop and how did human beings stay alive in a sometimes very volatile environment and that was via the senses so our five senses our main five senses and then of course you could say there's extrasensory ability and intuition but those are all built on the senses our senses allow us to navigate in the world and so when people talk about sensual aliveness or sensual pleasure what we are essentially talking about is um our ability to perceive fully through the senses so sensual um uh, or, or sensory sensory perception is the basis of sensual aliveness. And sensual aliveness, of course, greatly influences our sexual aliveness and pleasure. However you phrase sexual, right? Different people have different ways of uh, dealing with that or looking at that, but it's the being alive. And that feeling of, I don't know, stepping out right here in California right now, it's one of those crisp winter days right? uh, a crisp winter days where i live means there's a little bit of ice on the on the water in the morning and you can see your breath and there's beautiful crystals as the sun rises once again because we pretty much have sunshine most of the year right? And the the leaves are yellow and everything's shiny because it rained and green grass and it looks like Ireland out there for the months that California is green and it's just unbelievable right and it's it's like almost psychedelic in its intensity and uh you know and 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 um Impact. So when you are able to feel that, you become sensually very alive. Right, the smell of, of you know a little bit of uh, uh, the first orange blossoms. Uh, the, the, the taste of the oranges are also ripe now. You know the taste of an orange or a lime. The the touching of you know different textures all of that makes the body come fully alive and as the body comes fully alive our capacity for pleasure both sensually meaning enjoying something that tastes really good or looks really beautiful or the first song bird you know getting ready to want to do their mating thing or whatever it is that enlivens us and that enlivening is our birthright in the sense that it's kept us alive but right? if you are in the wild and you need to find something to eat, you get you are kept alive by being able to smell if something's on or off. You are kept alive by tasting something that's super bitter and spitting it out. You're kept alive by seeing Uh, prey somewhere in the forest or hearing something. So the things that used to um, keep us alive still are keeping us alive on a much deeper level as well. That's still true, right? If you don't hear something coming that's about to hit you, you might not survive on a practical level, but on a more Um, you know, holistic level of how we live when the senses come alive, we come alive as bodies and as humans outside of a little computer screen. And then that greatly influences um, how we can come alive sexually, uh, relationally, um, and, you know, essentially in our environment.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we could talk much, much more about that. But perhaps to end, as we're coming to an end, of this conversation, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the Superwoman Syndrome and also what you call the foundational wild woman's practice, moving what you're feeling Mm
1: -hmm. And about
0: the Superwoman Syndrome. You write, we've been led to believe that we can be everything in all domains. The messages are now coming not only from women's magazines and social media, but also from successful women themselves. The list of aspirational materials is endless. With much emphasis being placed on being beautiful, fit, and sexually desirable, as well as on having purpose and a career, many women I've worked with juggle the various aspects of their lives with great resourcefulness and joy, yet find it increasingly difficult to experience pleasure or to find and maintain a healthy relationship. That's the uh, superwoman syndrome, as you call it, and um, you know. Th- the the book, in a certain sense, seek, describes and then seeks to solve that problem as as one of its main themes. It's not the only theme, as we, as we've pointed out. There are other themes. But that's one of the, the the real main themes of the book, I think. And so naturally, there are many more analysis you give and m- many many more solutions offered. But I'd be curious about one particular one, which you call the foundational wild woman's practice, uh, something called moving what you're feeling. So I'm wondering if we could zone in on that particular one. Can you talk a little bit about the superwoman syndrome, or what, what you mean by that phrase, and also how it is that this moving what you're feeling practice, this foundational wild woman's practice, as you call it, can interact with that uh, syndrome uh, for some sort of positive effect?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I think, um, you know, then the amount of choices we have and the things we all want to do um, are, you know, in- incredible. And... Many of those things within the superwoman syndrome is that we do think we need to be everything to everyone, right? And that we need, and that we want, not only need, but want to have all these aspects of us expressed. And because of the way bodies are built and where energy needs to go in order to get things done, versus where energy needs to go in order to feel and enjoy and be pleasantly enlivened, um, you know there are different areas of the body. There are different usage of energy in, in all humans. It, it, you know it works very different when you are on a computer your body is essentially just parked in a chair while you're thinking and doing everything goes up here, which is why often at the end of the day, we do have a lot of tension up here because that's where all the energy goes. But then when we wanna be, let's say, Uh, romantic, or even just if we want to go play and have a good time or exercise, we need a lot of energy down in the power centers of our body, where that movement and the exercise, but also the pleasure and, um, you know, the excitement happens. And so in this, when we look at the superwoman syndrome, we're looking at that constant bringing up of the energy and that constant outward you know kind of feeling versus inward feeling and that outward feeling that outward orientation habitually brings all our energy up here which means that we don't have a lot of muscle, so to speak physical as well as emotional as well as pleasure muscle down here because that's not what we do all the time So within the superwoman syndrome, there's of course the more cognitive aspects, which I talk about in the book on how to choose relationship, how to make sure that your relationship maintains the spark. What are your dating considerations? What are your considerations around children, career, being with other people in a or community setting? But then um, when we look at the, how do you actually work with that in the body? There's one thing um, that uh, we kind of honed in on, which is the moving what you're feeling practice, which is essentially a practice of interoception where you are going inside and you're feeling whatever there is to be felt, which is also, as you often describe, uh, a certain kind of an intimacy, right? There's an intimacy with one's own emotions, sensations, inner workings. And Uh, you take those, you kind of bring your attention inward, and then you move whatever it is that arises um, in your body. So the concept is that you become sensitized to what's happening inside that could be a twinge. I slept funny, so I have a twinge on my right shoulder, right? So, uh, So I could go, oh, I have a twinge on my right shoulder. So instead of trying to make that go away, I could just engage with that and notice it and move my body in ways that i explore that feeling and as i do that even very subtly that feeling becomes so i become sensitized might be that it gets a bit uh, tighter to begin with but i can feel all the layers of that feeling which then allows the feeling to perhaps disperse or perhaps Uh, it gets intensified and I can deal with it, perhaps I would just move on to some other feeling. But whatever it is, you're essentially letting your motion be an expression of what's happening. And as you do that, um, you are able to um, essentially become current with your emotions, as well as your sensations, which allows for a much shorter lag time in response. response. And that response is very important, both in things like pleasure and uh, sexual responsiveness. It's also important for, let's say, boundary setting, because if you don't know what you're feeling inside, you can't say no to something. let's say you're in a meeting and you don't even know somebody was just rude to you till 30 minutes later when you're in the car. So it's a very, very important aspect of um, engagement with ourselves, both from a nervous system uh, standpoint. And with that, of course, things like trauma or injury from a body standpoint, wellness, and the ability to actually Um, regulate things like exercise, eating, stuff like that, and also emotion where we're coming back to what's actually happening. And that practice allows for a kind of coming home to ourselves that then is the foundation for everything else that that can occur from that
0: place. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that's that's a a part of a, a broader movement method, Uh, that springs from those original practices you learned from Deepa, your first teacher, who you write about in the book and who you've mentioned here, uh, but also your experience as a counsellor over these uh, many decades uh, working in Rehabs and uh, doing all sorts of interesting things. We, we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into that. Maybe we'll do an episode just on just on that. And indeed, uh, th- that you st- you teach classes uh, from that method, non the movement method, on a regular basis. And uh, we have we have teacher trainings and so on for that.
1: Also, you know, uh, talking about the superwoman syndrome, I did an entire seminar on the superwoman syndrome, where I go into all the details why it happens in the body, what you can do about it. I actually also teach an exercise and as a cure and a and we have that as a recording so we might as well include that in the show notes so if you're still around uh you can also just access that and uh, uh that's very detailed on the superwoman syndrome
0: Yeah, we'll make that available. Just click the link below. Well, this has been so fascinating, Michaela, and fantastic. Congratulations once again on the publication of paperback version of Wild Woman's Way. If you haven't checked it out, uh, listeners and viewers, please do. If you already have the the hardback version, you really ought to get the paperback version (laughs) because it's got a nice new cover. And, uh, you know, it's collectible by now, surely. (laughs) I I certainly have my copy. Well, Michaela, uh, congratulations on the the paperback and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Michaela Boehm Podcast. For workshops, courses, teacher trainings, and more, visit www.micaelabohm.com.